Hello and welcome to episode 102 of Command Space on 5x5. My name is Mike Hurley and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Jared Sinclair. Hi Jared, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm very well, sir. Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. So Jared, what do you like to be known for? Uh, wow. Um, I, I like to be known for my work, I guess. Uh, I like that um, I have sort of an unusual career path. I like that I was before an iOS designer and app developer. I was a registered nurse. Yeah, that's very unique. Yeah, I, I think it's unique, but I also don't think it's something that other people can't do as well. You know, I like to think that uh, my story might inspire other people who feel boxed in by uh, what you know people might expect of them. You know, like just because you do one thing for a job today doesn't define you or who you are for the rest of your life. So I like I, I like that sense of feeling free to change and, and be who I need to be. What happened in your life that took you from being a registered nurse to a, an app developer? Um, it just sort of, I kind of walked backwards into it, I would say. I got into iOS design and development as a hobby while I was a nurse. My first app was called Pillboxy. It's still on the App Store. It's a medication reminder. Uh, it hasn't been updated in a long time, but I'm still pretty proud of it. It was my first app. Um, I had seen in the New York Times, uh, whoever does app reviews for the Times, this was not David Pogue, this was, uh, I think the guy's name is Bob Tedeschi. He reviewed a bunch of medication reminder apps, and I looked at them, and none of them were really great. None of them were fun. And that that's where I, I first felt um, inspired, I guess. So... I thought, you know, these are not really that great. I bet I could do something better. Um, before I was a nurse, uh, I had worked uh, with Mac, so I was familiar with computers. I had done Mac hardware and software uh, repair. Nothing related to programming per se, but I knew some stuff. And before that, I had graduated with a degree in illustration. So I knew a little bit about computers, knew a little bit about art and design, hadn't done any software design, hadn't done any programming really. So... Uh, sort of fumbled my way through it and uh, shipped an app. <clears throat> so do you think, you mentioned that you are a designer and a developer. Uh, do you think of yourself as one on top of the other? Like, do you think of yourself as a designer first, developer first? I wish there was one word for it, but if I had to pick at the end of the day, I think I'm more of a designer than a developer. Just because, you know, for example, like, Apple recently announced Swift, a new programming language. So, you know, jaws were on the floor. Everyone was ooing and eyeing. And my first thought was not, oh, goody, a new programming language. My first thought was, oh, goody, a new programming language. <laughs> like, right. I like, I like the end product um, a lot. I don't really get off on tools the way some people do. And I think... I think that's why I don't feel like, you know, as serious a developer as other people might feel because I don't, I don't know, I, I, I feel like I'm making some sort of guilty admission even saying this on a podcast, but you know what I mean? Like I don't, yeah. I, I, I don't think of myself as like a programmer first. I think of myself as someone who learned how to program so he could see the app that he wanted to use on his phone. So like it's, you like the start bit and the end bit, but the bit in the middle... It's just so you can get from the start bit to the end bit. I think so. I wouldn't say it goes as far as saying I don't like it. I just say I, I don't love programming, but I do like problem solving. And I really like, my favorite part of design is not so much the visual part as just the, the experience part. Maybe user experience design is part of it, but you know, seeing how uh, all the pieces can come together to make something that's, surprising and yet comfortable and familiar at the same time. That's my favorite part. So when you uh, start to attack a problem, what hat goes on first? Like, does it differ from project to project or do you always start with the idea of design? Uh, for me, whether I'm working with a client or working for myself, I always start with a problem. Um, I need to have a, some type of target. 
to as a if nothing else as a test, a simple test to know whether or not a design or an, a product is successful. So say, let's take Pillboxy, the medication reminder, for example. So the goal for Pillboxy is, or was, how do you take something like remembering to take your medications and make it fun while still being accessible and user-friendly? So it can't be too fun or too silly. Um, how do you make it look nice? How do you take something that should be boring and make it a little bit of fun? Um, and so that became the starting point so that as I would branch out into different questions about how the app would be laid out or the colors or how it would be put together, it always came back to that initial problem. Uh, and by starting with the problem, especially when you're working in a group, it gives uh, a objectivity where otherwise there wouldn't be. Um, you know, And what I mean by that is you know, there's no end to the debate of um, like art, it, you know, is there objectivity in art? Is there such a thing as uh, objectively good or bad art? I don't think there is, but I think there is a kind of objectivity. I think there is the artist's intent, most importantly. Like, what does an, uh, a filmmaker intend with a movie? What does a songwriter intend with a piece of music? And if you can get at the artist's intentions, then you can evaluate whether or not a a given piece fulfilled the intention. So mm -hmm. it's it's how you know it's how you can watch an episode of Law and Order and understand that it's the greatest thing ever, even though it's not Oscar caliber acting or screenwriting or Emmy caliber by any stretch of the imagination. It's not. It's really cheesy, but it's the perfect expression of that intention. Uh, and so. You, you, when you judge um, apps in the same way, uh, and when you judge your own work in the same way, it by thinking about your intentions, and with an app, the intention is to solve that first problem. Then the problem and how well your app solves the problem gives you objectivity, which you can hang on to when you feel otherwise overwhelmed by questions like. Should our app icon be white or blue or orange or purple or green? And what should the name of the app be? And what should should it be a, a pro user app, a, a consumer friendly app? Should it have eighteen screens under this tab or not? Uh, without any kind of objectivity at the center of it all, um, there's nothing other than your own force of personality to say whether or not you're right. And uh, that's why I say with teams, it's especially important because otherwise design um, sessions become a shouting match to see who can shout the loudest. So saying about working in a team, um, this brings me to one of one of your apps I want to talk about. Well, it's, it's kind mm -hmm. of two apps, really, Repost and Whisper. Um, th there were two separate applications, but you'll see why I'm bringing them up together. But let's start with Repost. How did Repost come to be and what was, is uh, Repost? So Repost is a app.net client. Um, app.net was many things. The first thing it was was a Twitter-like micro-messaging service. So that's what most people will think of when they think of app.net. So that was what Repost worked with. So it, it felt... Like using Twitter, there was lots of set of tweets. There were posts. Um, you would sign into your account, and you could see a timeline of regular posts and posts that mentioned you. It also had direct messages later, so a later version of Repost added direct messages. Um, Repost was made by me and my friend Jamin Guy, who uh, I met. Uh, we both had the same job or were worked at the same company. At the same time, it was a startup called Streamweaver. Um, it's no longer operational, but we met together in, when I was living in Nashville, Tennessee. So I was a designer and an iOS developer there. Jamin was the senior iOS engineer there. And kind of as a joke, one day we were looking at app.net and we joked, you know, like, wouldn't it be funny if we made an app.net app and uh, called it Repost, you know, because... The question was, what do you call, if Twitter has retweets and tweets, and if app.net has posts, what is 
is it a repost? And then I f- noticed that it sounded a lot like the French slash English word repost, which is like a rebuttal. And it started out as that kind of a joke of wordplay. And then we thought, Jamin one day said, dude, what if we just actually made this? So uh, it coincided with a hackathon uh, where we were living in Nashville. So we sort of stayed up all night for two or three days and hammered out the first alpha build of repost. How did you and Jamin share uh, the responsibilities for the project? Yeah, we had a really good overlap. Uh, as I mentioned, we were both iOS developers. Uh, Jamin uh, had been a software developer a lot longer than me. Uh, so he tackled more like more difficult aspects of the code as well as all of our server-side infrastructure for push notifications and things like that. Uh, I handled more user-facing elements of the code as well as the design, things like the app icon, icons in the app, that sort of thing. So, you know, you mentioned that you, you had, it started off as a, a joke in essence, right? You were using app.net and you had this idea. Yeah. Um, but before turning it, in, turning, it, turning it into an application, um, you made the decision to actually make an app.net app. Why did you make that choice? Why did you not, take the joke and make a Twitter app? Why did you choose app.net? That's a good question. Um, At the time, this was still relatively soon after uh, Twitter's, they made many changes to their API, but this was relatively soon after their most controversial uh, changes. I think that's when they renamed the developer guidelines to developer rules of the road where they had that infamous graph with the four quadrants of apps. <laughs> and the one that everybody wants is the one that's now off limits, the upper right quadrant. Yeah. So there was a lot of animosity against Twitter. And I certainly felt that because, and Jamie did too, we were both iOS developers. We both love indie developers and indie apps. We both love apps like TweetBot. Uh, the Tapbots guys in particular for me were some of the inspiration for me wanting to go into iOS development in the first place. Back when I was um, a nurse, I used their apps all the time and loved them. So it was never really a question of whether or not we would make a Twitter app versus an app.net app. Uh, also, being a new, at that time, nobody really knew how app.net was going to pan out. It seemed very promising. A lot of influential people in our industry were talking about it and thinking about it. So it seemed like, oh, wow, here's this big blue ocean of a social network that stands a chance. Let's build this app and see what happens. At the very least, it would just be you know, a loss of nights and weekends. At best, it would turn into something that would make money and be a lot of fun. So at the time, I mean, people were were happy about app.net and excited for its future. What about the platform interested you? So when you were starting to develop for it, um, what about the platform was exciting to you as a developer and how did this change as time went on? I think what excited me about app.net is when you look at, let's just look at Twitter, for example. So many of the things that made Twitter what it is, started as ideas from the third-party developer community. Um, Hashtags, at mentions, um, you could say image attachments as well, services like TwitPic and others that would, you know, upload an image and then give you back a URL that you could see in your timeline. All of these things started from third-party ideas. Uh, and Twitter seemed to just say, oh, thanks for these great ideas. Now you can't really make money off of our service anymore. But when I looked at app.net, I saw a service that started from the beginning with that notion that developers are always going to have better ideas than we are, better ability to implement fun user experiences. What if we separated those concerns so app.net would handle all the infrastructure, user account management, etc. And then indie developers can just focus on making the best alpha client, the best messaging client, etc. It was a very appealing idea to me because I was definitely in that camp of people who felt, well, I would love to make a Twitter app, but I can't because they've sort of spoiled 
the, the mood and shut down access to new mm-hmm. developers. And I would love to make an app slash service like Twitter because it's just a really fun set of problems to solve. I really like communicating in that way. But I can't start a new social network. You know, I've, I've already got a job. I need something that I can do as a hobby. And app.net just fit our lifestyle perfectly as well as um, inspired us in, in those other ways. And then as you were developing for, for the system and app.net started to open up even more, they had like the developer incentive program um, and just became more increasingly developer friendly. How did this feel? Did it feel like you'd made the right decision? Oh, yeah, it, it really did. Um, working with the app.net team, we were on a first name basis with Dalton and Brian and all those other guys. Uh, they were very helpful. They were very friendly. Uh, we got to go to a couple hackathons with them and meet them in person. And um, it was very much a, a close knit experience. I felt like we were working with friends, not strangers, the way it would have been if we had made a Twitter app. Uh, the developer incentive was very generous. It started at 10000 a month, d- divvied up amongst all the apps in terms of popularity, but then they later increased it to $30,000 a month. So that was an awful lot of money that they didn't have to give away that they did. Uh, it was a way of saying thank you and a way of encouraging developers, and it really meant a lot to us um, at Repost. And then, I mean, it's difficult to say where what app.net's current status is. Um, it's still an active service. Um, things like the developer incentive program have gone away. Um, it's pr- pretty much just come to a halt now, though. Um, and it doesn't really look like there's much of a um, future for app.net. Um, did you see any indications of this on the horizon leading up to, to their announcement at the sort of the one year renewal point? Well, I had gut feelings. I don't know if I saw anything specifically. Um, This is not something I've talked about yet anywhere written about, but with some of the like my vision of the history of app.net was started with what you and I already talked about when you know there was that first mad rush. Everybody was trying to claim their usernames uh, and you started to see a few early app.net apps. There was the big rush when Tapbot's released um, Netbot, the app.net version of Tweetbot. And that saw a huge spike in usage, and then suddenly it went from being sort of a quiet alternative network to a very vibrant community. And it was around that time that we started working on Repost. So from the time we started working on Repost, October, what year was that, 2011, 2012? From that time through, say, March of March, April of that next year, so about a six-month period, uh, the API was getting new features what felt like almost every week there was a new API. There was improvements to the alpha component, which is, you know, posts, what we normally think of when we think of app.net. Then they added direct messages. And when they added direct messages, they didn't just do a Twitter clone. The channels is what the the API is called, channels API, was one of the most brilliantly engineered APIs I've ever seen. They built um, just that component alone of app.net could power everything from direct messages between one or two friends to public group chats, like, um, um, you know, what we, chat rooms, it could build... um, Theoretically, an Internet of Things, anything that has to communicate a a series of messages that exist only between machines, there's all kinds of amazing stuff that you could do uh, with the Channels API. A good example is um, Manton Reese's app that he worked on. Uh, What's that app called? Sunrise? Am I remembering the name correctly? It was a, a shared photo collage app where you could put together different photos with, with comments and location and a story. You have like a private uh, sort of like what shared photo streams are. You could do all of that with the Channels API. So that was pretty amazing. And so that, from when we started Repose through Channels, there was so many new things to the API. They could have stopped there, and it would have been enough to create a very broad set of applications. 
Uh, but then they started to do these other things that I didn't really understand. Uh, a few months later, they added broadcasts, which I still don't fully get, but it was a way of you could download the official app.net app, register to receive push notifications for different accounts. Like, say, every time Brett Terpstra has a new blog post, you could get a push notification for that. Their idea was that you could also register to receive push notifications when bands would, you know, update their um, websites or tour information, etc. Mm-hmm. But it never really took off. It never really resonated with me because I feel kind of overwhelmed by push notifications. But more broadly, it didn't really fit in with uh, the story of what I had seen with that.net so far. Um, then later they added the backer thing, which is sort of like a Kickstarter type idea. And, and these those later pieces didn't really, they felt like half-hearted pivots. And I don't really know if that's what they were. I'm not privy to their internal decisions, but... And then, in retrospect, not at the time, but in retrospect, looking back at that year, um, now, or let's say 2013 through now, the big stories in mobile, in terms of dollars being thrown around, was messaging. You have Line and, and WhatsApp and these, those other kind of apps. Huge, huge numbers. What, you know, Facebook bought WhatsApp for $19 billion, a company with... 31 employees, and all they do is private messaging. There's nothing in WhatsApp that you couldn't do with app.net's messaging API. Yep. And so in retrospect, I think, what if this was over a year before those stories? What if app.net had just gone maintenance only, stopped adding new features and new product lines to the app.net company? Stop it at channels, stop it at private messages, and then build their own first-party messaging apps for iPhone, Android, and Mac, and the web. Make them pleasant, but really light on features, and then market the hell out of them. Get as many users as they can to come in and use these apps, and then as people start to chafe at the edges of what their apps can do, promote the developer community. Show how um, you could actually use all these same accounts and API infrastructure to make a business uh, chat experience, kind of like Slack, et cetera. And the, 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 the plus for developers would be you don't have to do any of the hard work of finding all these customers, all these users. We would be doing that for you already, and we just push people to try to buy and use your app, stickers, whatever it is. And I wonder if, if maybe that would have helped. It's like the short version is that I feel app.net never really did a good job of nailing down a story that they could tell to everyday people about what it is and what it does. You know, from the name app.net, which doesn't really mean anything, to the sort of mix of alpha and broadcast and backer, it, it kind of felt like a cloud, but I, you know, it would have been better maybe to lie in the sense of not telling the whole truth, pick one thing, maybe messaging, and say, give it a better name than app.net, call it, you know, whatever, WhatsApp, Pickle, whatever you call it, and then tell the world, this is what we are, this is all we do. We make these messaging apps, and they're kind of fun, they're little add-on features, but what the hell. But of course, everybody who pays attention in our industry would know, no, they're a lot more than that. They have much bigger aims. But give uh, everyday people a toehold, something that they can say, oh, I know that thing. It's that messaging thing. I'll try it. And then later show them backer, show them broadcasts, show them alpha, the part that Repost worked with. But, you know, it's very, very hard to start a new social network. It sounds like a good idea, really. <laughs> yeah. you know? It was a $19 billion idea. So you uh, you did work on a messaging app um, called Whisper. Yeah, we launched that in uh, May, just before WWDC, uh, just before iOS 7 was announced. Yeah, I remember. As I remember, we all wanted it to communicate at WWDC. Um, yeah, that was definitely part of... Like you can see it in here and there in 
pieces of the design. We had uh, custom stickers. We called them stickers, but they were really more like Western emoji. Yeah. So, and and one of them was called Conference Center, but it was clearly a it was Moscone. Uh, Moscone West <laughs> with the apple, with a little bit of the apple visible, but not enough to get rejected. Yeah, it was that was fun. It was um, we I remember using it all like just constantly that year and for a long time after actually i i we used uh whisper for a bunch of group chats um so is uh what is the fate of, of repost and whisper right now the fate is uh i'm pretty sure they're going to be maintenance only we want them to work on ios 8 we don't want them to break for people there are still a contingent of app.net users that use it faithfully every day. I still think it's a better place to have conversations than Twitter um, for two really simple but powerful reasons. One is 256 characters is, it doesn't sound like that much more than 140, but in practice, it's, it's, uh, it means all the difference in the world. You don't have to abbreviate or subtract words. You can say what you think. And the other reason is when you, like in Repost, you, you swipe right to left to go into a conversation view, the mess, you get back the full conversation. Whereas on Twitter, every Twitter app I've used, whether it's third party or first party, when you go into a conversation view, there's always stuff missing. So you end up, I end up having to work around the API limits by replying to myself and deleting my own username and adding somebody else's username because I know on Twitter it's going to make all my posts appear when somebody sees the conversation if I have to split things into more than one tweet, which you do because 140 characters is just not long enough. So app.net is still a great place to have a conversation for the people that are using it all the time, using it every day. But I don't think it's going to grow. I, I don't think that where it's at now is... It makes business sense for Jamin and I to put energy into new features or an iPad app or anything like that. It just, it's not a good plan. So um, we plan to fix any bugs or incompatibilities with iOS 8. But beyond that, I don't really anticipate doing much with either one of those. What's the biggest lesson that you've learned whilst developing Repost and Whisper that you're applying to your future projects? Uh, me personally? Yeah. Um. I think the biggest lesson, other than the one I've already said, which is, you know, if you've got a new product or a new company, find your story early on and, and, and focus on it, even if it's kind of a half-truth. Uh, but for me personally, uh, I learned a lot about what makes an app comfortable. Repost, in particular, has gotten a lot of compliments since it was released for its design and the theme to the compliments that I saw were that people couldn't put a finger on what they liked about it. They tried to, but everybody would just say, there's just something about it that I like. And they couldn't quite say what, and different people tried. Um, the word that I've come to land on is comfortable. Uh, there was a, an app.net post. Somebody wrote about it once. He said, I'm blanking out on his name, but he wrote something like, uh, finally trying repost. It's unfamiliar yet surprisingly comfortable is what he said. And uh, another person, uh, Sean Throop, who has a similar story to mine. He is a uh, professional ballet dancer who is now working on becoming an iOS developer. So I mean, this guy's insane. <laughs> who knows what he did before professional ballet? <laughs> but he wrote a blog post when repost came out. Uh, where he he actually described something that we did unconsciously, but we did it with such regularity in the app that in retrospect, we could just say, oh yeah, it was on purpose, sure. But I think we walked backwards into this one. He said that in Repost, we only use taps for actions and swipes for navigation. And he said that made the app really easy to use because you never, when you, in apps that mix, um, what you could call like panning or horizontal slash vertical gestures. When apps mix those kinds of movements uh, to do both navigation or actions, for example, like in mail.app on iOS, you can swipe to delete. Or on lots of other apps, you can swipe to reveal 
you know, a little contextual menu of delete and share, etc. That actually makes an app really physically uncomfortable uh, to me because it sacrifices comfort for the sake of speed. The idea is you don't want to have to double tap or triple tap or long press. You just want to flick right to left and get a quick contextual menu. Is it faster? Absolutely. But what you lose is for every time you want to use a gesture for something else, like swiping to go back, you have to think even for a fraction of a second, think, okay, am I starting from the edge of the screen or if I starting from the middle? Because if I start from the middle, I might accidentally star or retweet this thing. I need to go to the edge to make sure I go back. And that introduces a tiny little speed bump, which multiplied across every action you take in an app, slows you down and makes the app that much less comfortable. So I applied that lesson a lot in Unread, which is the app uh, uh, first app I made after repost. Um, it's an RSS reader for anybody who hasn't uh, heard of it or tried it yet. Um, the starting goal for Unread, among other things, was I knew that I wanted to see what would happen if I applied this rule religiously. If I didn't use any kind of swiping actions whatsoever, if all horizontal movement was used to navigate and only taps and long presses for actions. So it made for a lot of design challenges. Um, for example, uh, most, most people who use Unread were probably using an app like Reader for RSS on their phone. And Reader is designed more for kind of quickly triaging your RSS feeds. So in Reader, when you're on a list of article summaries, can swipe left to right. I think it's left to right to mark it as red, maybe, and right to left to star it. Maybe I have them mixed up. I think they actually might be customizable. But either yeah, way, yeah. it's it's a really quick way to do whatever action you have set up for that thing. It's very fast. Um, but my problem, because I used Reader before I made Unread, was that when I was in the article view, I could swipe anywhere on that article text to sort of pan it left to right. But then the very next screen, if I tried to do the same action, I would end up doing some destructive thing accidentally. Uh, so I knew that I would have to find some other way other than that of providing the same level of functionality because uh, I imagined correctly that most unread users would be coming from readers so they would have a set of expectations about what they could do with the summary cells. They want to be able to share it. They want to be able to toggle whether or not it's red, uh, star red, et cetera. Um, and so that was a very challenging time uh, figuring out what I was going to do there. I had all kinds of goofy mock-ups of contextual menus that would appear. I had this different kinds of buttons that you would sort of tap and hold. Buttons that looked sort of like um, if you've seen the iOS 8 betas the button in mes uh, Messages app where you hold it down to make a voice recording and you get that circular contextual menu. Mm -hmm. I was going to possibly have a menu like that for sharing and starring. And Then one day I said, you know what? Screw all this. You're just going to push and hold anywhere on the cell and then you get a menu. <laughs> and that, being, that ended up being the simplest and, and most pleasant way, even if it's slightly slower than the reader style. The benefit is you never have to worry that you're going to accidentally delete or star or mark toggle the red status of anything in unread. So it feels more physically comfortable. So let's talk about unread a little bit. Um, what made you decide that you wanted to develop your own RSS app? Um, first, I knew I wanted a challenge. I was, at the time, my wife and I had a lot going on. We had our first child. Or we knew he was on the way. Uh, my wife got a new job here where we live now in Bloomington, Indiana, Indiana University. So we were moving. I needed a new job. She needed a new job. So I thought, you know, I don't really think there's many iOS developer opportunities in Bloomington, so why don't I try being a full-time indie developer? Cool. So I needed something that I thought I could tackle in a reasonable amount of time. So anything that required 
building a, a significant server com- server side component would have been out of the question because that would have increased the learning curve to the point that I wouldn't be able to get anything done for a year. I needed something that I could see myself using and something uh, ideally that I already understood as a product from personal experience so it wouldn't be a completely unfamiliar challenge. And uh, my friend Jamin suggested, hey, why don't you build an RSS app? And I actually hadn't thought of it. At the time, I wasn't using RSS. I had been using Google Reader until it shut down. I didn't change to anything else uh, because at the time, I, that made me, as it shut down, I realized I was sort of burnt out with RSS, like a lot of people had become. Uh, for me, the problem was I was oversubscribed. <clears throat> I had way too many feeds. You know, what would happen is somebody on Twitter would link to somebody's blog and this person who, or website, whatever it was, had written some amazing post. And then I would think, oh my gosh, what if I ever miss something else that this website has published? I need to just subscribe to the full hose so that I can find all those needles in the haystack. And then over time, you get way too many feeds, so you try putting them in the folders, and it turned what should have been a leisure activity into another form of email. And that was not fun. Email is not fun. As anyone... an inbox. Like that was one of my <laughs> problems with uh, with app.net and towards like my time of coming to stop using it is it just became another inbox for me. Yep. Yep. We need we need less stuff right now, not not more. Just, we're oversaturated. Yep. So so I thought, okay, RSS really makes sense from a technical standpoint to me as a good problem to solve because obviously I don't have to worry about the server component. But how can I make an RSS app that appeals to me? So I thought, well, at the time that I decided I wasn't using RSS, but I did have a home screen folder of uh, Safari home screen clips, whatever those things are called, you know, the bookmark icons where you can save a website. Mm-hmm. I had saved a couple of those for the sites that I just never wanted to miss. But that, you know, pretty quickly you discover why they came up with RSS in the first place. Is You know, it's a pain in the ass to have to tap on each of those things every time you want to see if there's something new. So I said, okay, how can I make an RSS app that lets me feel not like I'm using email, but more like I'm reading... Uh, say, a literary magazine like The New Yorker, where you've got it folded up in one hand and you're kind of kicked back in your most comfortable chair, wearing your most comfortable clothes, just relaxing in the morning or in the evening, reading something where your intention is not to scan headlines, but to read a writer, a specific person's words. Um, Guys like Trump Blanc, or my friend Adam Kotzko, who is a philosophy and theology professor, um, who writes about all kinds of things from, uh, you know, ancient Jewish uh, origins of the concept of Satan or madmen. Like in the same blog, he writes about stuff like this. I don't want to miss anything he writes. So now with Unread, I have this app where it's still RSS, but I feel like I'm reading uh, a magazine that's been compiled for me with just simple text and a simple background. And it shows up in my mailbox every morning. So there was a lot of anticipation around unread before it launched. Uh, how did this feel? Did, did it excite you that people were so excited to use the app or did it, was it a nerve wracking experience because there was a lot of expectation? It was both. It was absolutely both. This was my first app as a, full-time indie dev so there's all of the you know the financial weight hanging over me like you know i'm in a small town in the usa where there's not a lot of full-time opportunities for if any for people who do what i do so unread needs to do well Mm -hmm. but more importantly unread is kind of like proof that this entire career move makes sense for me like unread doesn't necessarily need to be the product that carries me for a decade, it could just carry me for six to 12 months and be okay. But more importantly, it needs, 
needs to I need to prove to the world that I can make something that does what it says on the box that doesn't crash and delete all of your stuff and that you know leaves customers with a good impression and wants to know what I'm making makes them want to know what I'm making next and so uh, that was pretty scary but when it came out and people really loved it and people in beta testing really enjoyed it it uh was very reassuring to me and has really helped so did the um the launch period like the the day week after launch did it live up to the expectations that you had like did it did it perform well it did um one of the bigger questions for indie developers these days is you know are the glory days of the app store you know 2008 through 2010 those that time period are those glory days ever going to come back is it still possible to be an independent developer and make you know if you put out a really great app are you going to be able to make the kind of money that you could make if you did uh, client work or got a full-time job just working for a startup, something like that. Um, and I'll I'll be honest, Unread does not make, didn't that week, and I'm looking at the context of since it came out in January, Unread does not make and won't make the kind of money that I could make if I uh, quit being indie and got a job at a startup. Yeah, I don't know if that means that iOS development is slowing if indie business is just on a downward slope or if it means that uh, startup salaries are uh, inflated. I don't I don't really know. I don't think I'm qualified to make those kind of sweeping judgments. Um, but it does mean that anybody who's deciding between being an indie dev and being a full-time dev or switching to client work. If you choose indie development, you're really going to need to do it at least half the time out of the love for what you're doing. Because if you don't love it, you're going to take one look at what the starting figures are for a stooge job, and that'll make up your mind really quickly. Hmm. Um, I think the problem for indie devs in particular is that there are different ways of making money off of an app and the kind of apps that indie devs want to make for the love of it doesn't really make that much money anymore or not at all the way say an app like candy crush saga uh, there's an app and other apps like it that makes its money off of recurring consumable and app purchases and those apps make a fortune because they have figured out this formula that kind of creates an almost addictive kind of experience where you, you know, say it's Clash of Clans, you just really, really want to see that thing that you just bought get built. You don't want to have to wait for 15 hours for it to be built. So, Mom, can I have your credit card, please? I just need like $4.99 to get these gems, please, just this one time, please. That doesn't fit in an app like Repost. You know, that model in Repost would look like you get 50 posts that you could publish. And then once you've used those 50, you have to buy $5 to unlock the next 50 or something like that. Mm -hmm. No one's, no one's going to do that. Either they'll switch to another app that offers that functionality for free, or even if you're the only one, it just, it, like, you, you need your in-app purchase models to encourage more behavior not discourage it so all most of those games like clash of clans use uh, real dollars to speed up something that you've already done for fun not slow down or, or be like a, a pain wall between you and something you want to do um so what other ways can apps make money there's the recurring in-app purchases that you consume there's in-app purchases for pro features and we experimented with that in repost now, granted, Repost is a much smaller subset of the App Store because it only appeals to people who want to use App.net. And of those, it only appeals to people who, of course, have iPhones and who aren't already satisfied with the apps they have. So we had Repost Pro, which was a $5 in-app purchase that unlocked a bunch of really sweet features like a 
you know, pre-iOS 7, it had a, a shortcut to change the screen brightness. It had um, kind of, now I can't remember what was available to all users and what was free. Custom typefaces, all kinds of stuff. Really nice stuff. Um, what we found is when we launched for Post Pro, all of our core users who pretty much buy anything we put out, assuming that it's, you know, of the, to just our standards of quality, all those core users bought it as soon as it came out, and then sales sort of disappeared, just like with the launch of Unread. Everybody who had heard about Unread and was excited, they all bought it on day one. I bet I could have put it at $10 instead of $3 launch price, and people still, the same people probably would have bought it. Um, so if Unread was to add a bunch of pro features like Repost, I think it would be the same thing. An initial spike of really core users who have come to rely on Unread as their go-to app every day for RSS-related news, they would buy it, and then it would sort of disappear. So what you really want to be able to do to make sustainable income is find a way to continue to make money from your best customers. You want to provide something that they're willing to pay for with regularity. So if it's not in-app purchases of either kind, then the only other remaining option is to do subscriptions. I won't get into the details about why subscriptions don't make sense for Unread, but let's just take it up a notch and say that in general, most productivity apps don't really make sense with subscriptions. They sort of get shoehorned into it. Um, or you do something like say, say I made a to-do list app. You know, if I was to make a to-do list app, in 2014, I would probably make the app free and then require a yearly subscription and have the app sync with some server uh, infrastructure that syncs between an iPhone, an iPad, a Mac, a web, et cetera, a client. So I would need to make a bunch of clients and a server component and have all of that stuff up and ready on day one so that it appeals to the customers from the beginning and then they can pay whatever monthly or yearly fees to have access to that service. That still makes sense in 2014. But I wonder when I, I'm, okay, so I can, I can be kind of a depressing person sometimes. <laughs> uh, the, 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 you know, being someone who spends a lot of time in creative work and imaginative work, it's uh, you find out that the imagination is a double-edged sword because the the dark half of the imagination is you get very good at realistically imagining bad things that could happen, and the problem is because your job depends on being able to realistically imagine stuff before it happens. You get really good at realistically imagine all the bad things that can happen to your products and to your industry, and so I think, oh God, what if? All the indie developers feel the same pain at the same time. And so instead of choosing a subscription model because it makes sense for the product, they shoehorn their products to fit into a subscription model because that's the only business model that's still tenable. But now that everybody's offering subscriptions, what will that do? That'll probably drive the average subscription price down the same way that the average paid app price has been driven down. And are customers going to reach a point where they just don't want to have to sign up and cancel for a subscription every time they want to try an app? Like, are you, at what point do we say enough is enough? I don't really want another, you know, company missing a vowel to charge me $9 a month and then I forget about it and then I look at my bank account like, what is all this $9 for Globular? What is Globular? I don't remember signing up for that. Like, I worry about that happening. Um, so personally, um, I have decided to try to augment what work I do as an indie dev with client work. Um, I think it, it would fit my, what I want for myself better than just calling it quits altogether and taking a salary job, even though financially they, that might make the most sense from a safety point of view, I've got a wife and a kid. Want to be safer to just take a regular salary? Yeah, maybe. But I think if I mix uh, 
the apps that I want to make for me with apps that I make for clients, I think I could find the best of both worlds. More financial stability, but also a greater freedom and creative control, especially if I can get to the point where I'm choosier with my clients. So I can pick clients whose products and, and needs sort of fit my desire to be involved more deeply into the design process than, than uh, other folks might be. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to not be super dark and depressed about it, but I certainly have reached a point where I'm making concrete steps to try to prepare for the worst if indie development continues to face the challenges that it does. Not that I want to end on a somber note. Yeah. <laughs> but this this does kind of wrap up the episode quite nicely, I think. Um, and, and I think it, it may be better to ask this question, I think, before, before I end. Um, are you happy with the choice that you've made about being an independent developer? Yeah, I am. I, at the end of the day, I think of myself... God, I'm going to sound like such a douchebag just saying this out loud. I feel like an artist. And by that, I'm not saying that I'm a great artist. I could be terrible. What I mean more is I feel like I have an artist temperament where I like to feel like I'm being creative, like I have some control over what I do, where the stuff that I make, I could put my signature on it the way you sign a painting. And I could say, you may not like this, but this is what I wanted to make. And this works exactly the way I wanted to. And that, that means an awful lot to me. Um, it's hard to put a price tag on that. And so that is why I, I, you know, I don't have any regrets about what I chose. I really love what I do. Jared, thank you. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and, and I've really enjoyed this episode actually. There's lots of uh, really thoughtful and insightful discussion. So thank you for, for being on the show and for putting in this amount of thought. It's uh, much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Where can people find you online? Where's a good place to keep up to date with what you're doing? I am Jared Sinclair pretty much everywhere on Twitter at .net, uh, the .com. That's also where I blog and uh, if you are looking for someone for client work for to help you make an app, or um, I also do some branding design. If you have a company that needs some help with branding, visual branding, I'm available for that. So all of that stuff you can find at my website, jaredsinclair.com. Good stuff. And if you want to find links to, to everything we've spoken about today, you can go over to 5x5.tv slash cmdspace slash one. Zero two. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Command Space. I'll be back next week. Until then, bye-bye.